Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Sign up using code CHAMPION and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you'll get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matters more than ever. Remember to use code CHAMPION and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets If you don't win your first bet, place your money line, prop, or parlay bets with the king of sportsbooks today. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. See BetMGM.com for terms. 21 plus only. Virginia only. New customer offer subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Promotion, promotional offer not available in Washington, D.C. At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place. By working more efficiently. By using more sustainable practices. By developing better technologies. We keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com slash purpose. Parker, engineering your success. What's going on, everybody? Welcome to episode three of the Future Projection Podcast. I am Carlos Colazzo, joined as always by Ben Badler. Ben, what is going on, man? Same old, same old, Carlos. Putting together a bunch of uh, reports on some of the international signings from from this class, trying to keep up with everything going on in in the draft, and then I'm I'm enjoying the uh, the Twitter happenings right now on, on your page. <laughs> oh man. I really, uh, kind of sent baseball Twitter into, uh, I don't know. I sent everyone crazy with some fast food 2080 rankings. So basically I threw out my fast food rankings on a 2080 scale. I didn't think they were that crazy takes, but apparently the internet thought otherwise. Um, I'm very curious how, what 80s you'd put out there, basically my 80s for fast food. And keep in mind, everyone, this is a fast food scale. So I understand that the best fast food restaurant doesn't hold a candle to an authentic Italian restaurant uh, or, or something like that. It's, it's very clearly a fast food, fast casual ranking. My three 80s were Chipotle, obviously. Uh, if you guys know myself or Ben, you know how highly we think of Chipotle. Uh, Chick-fil-A and then Five Guys were the three very clear, obvious 80s for me. Do you think any of those three are crazy? And I guess what would your 80s be of the fast food or fast casual restaurants? Yeah, I'm, I'm with you on Chipotle. I, I'm, a, I'm a big, big Chipotle guy. I like the app, order ahead, get it right there when you walk in, especially right now. Um, I, I think it's, I mean, it's everybody gets so kind of up their own ass on these food rankings. And I think people don't realize how, how surprised or how aghast people would be at, at their own choices until you, you put it out there. So I, I respect that you put your, your choices out there. Yeah. Um, here are my hot, here are my hottest takes, or at least the, the biggest areas for people getting upset on my list. I think the first one that I would have to point out is Waffle House. I put them at a solid 20. I knew going in that I was going to upset plenty of people around Georgia 
And from that area, JJ is a very adamant Waffle House supporter. I have friends who are adamant Waffle House supporters. I think it's horrible. I think when you have a reputation for like 90% of the people that go to your restaurant, they're drunk when they go to it or hungover. I think that's very telling for me. It's an easy 20. Didn't have to think too much about it. So, so then how do you explain Taco Bell as a seven? Okay, okay. Because I feel like in, in, <laughs> in context, that sounds very similar to me where I, I, you know, I'm not a Taco Bell guy. And I haven't had Taco Bell in a while, so I don't want to give an evaluation on a, on a player I haven't seen in, in person mm-hmm. myself in quite some time. It could have changed, so well, just, I'll, I'll acknowledge that. But that does seem like the kind of the kind of restaurant that that plays up when you're 20 years old and, and inebriated out of your mind at two in the morning. So sure, sure. I think all these restaurants probably play up if you're inebriated. But just for some context, I was completely sober today. Had Taco Bell for lunch. Got me fired <laughs> up to do some uh, draft work. Uh, really some energized me for bias. the rest of the day. So you know. It really just comes in clutch all the time. I love their shifting menu items. The quesadilla is great. The, the Crunchwrap Supreme, and, and I understand there are places you can get a better Crunchwrap Supreme, um, but that was the first place I ever got a Crunchwrap Supreme when I was a kid, when that came out. It was awesome. I'm, hu- I'm a big fan of the Dorito Locos Tacos. The Baja Mountain Dew is fantastic. The Cinnamon Twists are fantastic. So I'm just very high on a number of items on the menu there. I think there is, there's definitely one. Oh yeah. There's another one that I kind of know I'm high on and I'm fine being high on this one. I put Subway at a 60 and I think most people, and in fact, everyone that I've talked to says Subway is way too high on this list, which I think is you're fine. a little rich. You're a little rich there to me. I'm perfectly happy to be the high man on Subway. Here's the thing with Subway growing up $5 footlongs, outstanding value. Okay. I can see how some people think the quality of the meats has gone down over the years. I'd probably agree with you there. But still, I've been getting the Italian BMT from Subway for years, and it tastes the same to me. Uh, I don't know if I just don't have the, the most distinguished palate in the world or what, but also, Subway is everywhere. And if you're on the road in the middle of nowhere and you don't want to eat just crap, I feel like Subway is a pretty reasonable option if you actually want to get some healthy food. You could do that if you wanted to at Subway. Extremely consistent, good value in terms of the amount of food for your money. I'm very high on Subway. And I think I've always said that I have Subway behind only Jersey Mike's in terms of national like sub chains. And that's how it it lines up on my list. I have Jersey Mike's at a 70, Subway at a 60. And I think the next one I have is like Penn Station or Jimmy John's. I'm not a huge Jimmy John's fan, Ben. I'm sorry. See, I think... I, you know, look, your, your taste buds are your taste buds. It's your brain. You know, everybody's different. So I can, don't tell Twitter that I don't, I I can't take it. I know I'm not, I don't take myself quite as seriously as some of the, the Twitter responses that we probably are getting. (laughs) I will say, look, you've got Chipotle as an 80 and then you've got, it couldn't be any other range. Oh no, I'm not arguing that. Yeah. I'm looking at Qdoba as a 50 and Moe's as a 40. I can explain all these as well. I'm just saying I don't see the gap in talent between those two guys, between those three, three, three establishments where you got a one-one type grade on on Chipotle. You got a third round. You got a third round number on on Qdoba, (laughs) and and you're putting, you know, maybe a late round number on on Moe's. I just don't see the the spread in talent or or the gap between those places the way the way that you do. I think 
I, I think you get better. Uh, I, I think they're a little bit closer than, than the way you have them. Well, I know you would put Chipotle at the top, so you're basically just shoving up the other Tex-Mex, Tex-Mex places closer to Chipotle. my own bias, yeah. All right. Well, well, Chipotle is certainly my 1-1. It's my Adley Rutschman comp on the, uh, the fast food rankings. I think for me, for Moe's, I really think it's overrated. I think people love the chips and salsa, which is fine. It's good. It's better than fine. Their salsa is pretty good. The queso there is better than Chipotle. I will give you that. But when it comes to all the ingredients that you're putting in your burrito or your burrito bowl, I think Chipotle crushes Moe's. I think Cadoba, I've had it less than both Moe's and Chipotle, but I think it's kind of in between the two, and that's where I have it on my list. Uh, I'm just really, really, really high in Chipotle. I think that's all it comes down to. Well, I think we're going to get thrown off Spotify and Apple podcasts after you've gotten canceled yeah. on on Twitter too. So yeah. this may be my account might podcast. not be there tomorrow. So, <laughs> but if you guys do want to go see the list and uh, argue with me on Twitter, feel free to go check it out. And I also threw the link into the tier ranker if you're interested in making your own uh, rankings of fast food restaurants. And it's always more fun if you just throw it to a 2080 scale. Come on, you got to do that. But enough fast food talk. Ben, what are we talking about when it comes to baseball today? Um, there's a lot to talk about. Some spring training stuff has been going on. Um, I know there's maybe a, a swing change guy that we want to talk about later on, but uh, what's on your mind? Short stops. Short stops. Uh, watching spring training games, watching highlights of Bobby Witt Jr. hitting balls, uh, what was it, supposedly 484 feet? Not sure how I buy that number, but it was definitely uh, a huge, huge home run. He's super exciting. Really excited to see what him and C.J. Abrams do after the reports that we got on those two players last, uh, last year coming out of the alternate site. And we got some big shortstops coming up out of the draft this year and Jordan Lawler and, and Marcelo Meyer, uh, two, two really talented high school shortstops. So I, it seems like I have a chance to go top 10 pick that may be probably being conservative on yeah, it. Yeah. I think you could make a case today, at least that they were like both top five picks. Yeah. And crazy you know, like, that. like I said, I'm, I'm putting together these reports on the international signings from you know, what we still call the 2020 class, but basically these kids who signed on, on January 15th this year, and there's some pretty electric talent there too. So, um, did, uh, so yeah, you think Jordan Lawler and, and maybe Marcelo Meyer too would, would be top five picks if, if maybe if the draft were today? I think so. I think there's, we have them number two and number four right now, respectively. So we have them ranked right in that range. Obviously, things can change uh, fairly significantly between now and the draft. But I think those are two profiles that are probably a little less volatile in terms of how they move up or down the board. I wrote about this previously at Baseball America, either a draft mailbag or a chat or something like that. But I just feel like with what these guys did over the summer and the competition that they're going to be playing this spring, they would have to either really implode, um, like Lawler and Meyer would have to show up and basically their tools have like degraded to a certain extent or they would have to like get injured to a degree that really clouded their future outlook. I just feel like 
what they did last summer, their tool sets, their profiles, how they look defensively at shortstop, uh, their pure hitting ability. I mean, the past few years, the, the best pure hitters in the high school class have been outfielders. And it looks like in this year's class, I mean, Lawler and Meyer are two of the better pure hitters in the class. And when you combine that shortstop profile, I just feel like that's a profile that's going to be pretty safe uh, and pretty high in the draft class, especially when teams are really searching for bats on the college side. Now, again, I say this as we sit here at the beginning of March, there could certainly be college hitters who surge up the board throughout this season. Uh, but the college shortstop class really doesn't look that great. As we sit here right now, Matt McLean is the only college shortstop we have, I believe in the first round, um, unless you have like Cody Morissette listed as a shortstop and he's not playing that position. Um, so it's really a light class for college shortstops and potentially a very good one for high school shortstops. I mean, even after Lawler and Meyer, you have guys like Brady House and Isaac Pacheco, who, again, they might move off the position down the line, but they're playing it now. Both of them have a chance to be really good defensive third baseman if they do have to move off shortstop. And then you have a guy like Khalil Watson, who, again, was fantastic last summer, super twitchy athlete, great bat speed, um, really athletic in the field. So really, I think this high school shortstop class has a chance to be one of the better ones we've seen in recent years. I think this century, there have only been four high school shortstops in the first round. That's that's like the highest number of prep shortstops that have been drafted in the first round. And if all those guys who, I mean, the lowest of the high school players that I'm talking about now, we have Pacheco at 21. If all of those guys do wind up going in the first round and they're taken as shortstops, uh, it would set a record going back to like the 70s, I believe, in terms of quantity of high school shortstops in the first round. So it's an exciting group. Yeah, and, and reading over the reports on, on these guys and, and from what I've seen on them too, it, it definitely seems like Lawler and Meyer have put themselves a cut above those other high school shortstops you mentioned. Like you said, some of them, you know, Brady House, I think has a chance to be a big-time power bat who could – play third base and and could be a I think a a really really good player but it it does seem like at least to me Lawler and and Meyer are really the two guys who are probably the most well-rounded players of of that group I don't know if you agree with that but it just seems like they have Mm -hmm. really good tools across the board project to stick at at shortstop and both both just really smooth players too Mm -hmm. I think on on both sides yeah, I think that's perfectly fair. I think Lawler is probably a little bit more explosive in terms of his natural tool set, whereas Meyer is maybe more of the the more fluid and instinctual defender at shortstop right now. And he also has uh, like a frame that you maybe can project a little bit more strength to come into. But again, Lawler has really twitchy bat speed. Um, and again, it, it might be, I don't know if this is a lazy comp or an accurate comp, but it's probably not surprising that the Texas shortstop with really loud tools at all five tools is being compared to Bobby Witt Jr. I don't think it's, it's the perfect comp in the world. I think they're different physically uh, and how they defend. uh, And even with their hit tools at this stage, I mean, I think Bobby Witt showed more raw power and maybe a little bit more swing and miss. Whereas Lawler has shown a little bit more feel for the barrel at this same stage. And he's maybe a less instinctual defender. Um, but it's an interesting comparison to make. And if he turns out anything like what Bobby Wood has looked like this spring, I mean, that's an electric player. I don't know if you wanted to pivot into some of the pro guys, but 
Bobby yeah. Witt has been explosive. I, I've long, I feel like I've been the high guy on him in the office and watching him play this spring has been a lot of fun. Yeah. Yeah. And the reports, like I was saying earlier that we got out of him last summer were, were still really, really good. I think people are starting to see a little bit more, at least as far as just public looks at Bobby Wood Jr. Between the, some of the plays he's made this spring defensively, the power he has, like you said, speed. And just physically, like he has filled out extremely well. I mean, just, this is me just looking at video of him, but he looks like a monster physically. Like he was a little bit lankier in high school and seeing the amount of muscle that he's put on his body right now is really, really exciting. I mean, the raw power that this could, I think we were both at Fenway when we saw him, uh, not Fenway, we were both at Wrigley, Wrigley, I believe, when he hit a ball almost out of the stadium, might've even been out of the stadium. Um, but to think of him with added strength and now uh, a better feel to put the bat on the ball, he was showing less swing and miss last summer. I mean, it's a it's a very electric combination, and he is one of just two players in our prospect handbook that had 60s or better across the board. So, yeah, would you? How how would you? Comp- I mean, like you said, and and they're both two guys who were, and I think Lawler is the same way, a little bit older for for their high school class. So yeah, I mean, I think there's probably geographic biases that come into comps and and things like that for for good reason, right? If you're an area scout in in a certain area, you're gonna compare players to you know guys you've seen in in your area, whether that's in Texas or Caracas, right? So I think that's just true universally i mean would 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 you have put you know if, if bobby wood jr when when he was a high school senior or at least maybe at the beginning of his senior year of high school would he be ahead of where waller is right now or would they be kind of neck and neck for for you at least at, least at that time obviously yeah, bobby yeah. wood jr is still has kind of taken another step forward as being older and and in pro ball right now it's an interesting conversation. Um, I talked with a, a few scouts who thought that Wit maybe had like a half grade better tools across the board. Again, outside of that like pure hit tool, which if the hit tool is the one you think Lawler has the advantage in, maybe you could still say that Wit's uh, secondary tools or supplemental tools were better, but you still preferred Lawler because you just have more confidence in the hit tool. I could see you saying that, but I just feel like for me, and maybe this is because I got to actually put eyes on Bobby Witt in person, whereas with Lawler, with, with the lack of travel, I wasn't able to do that. I would probably still have Witt above him just because of the, the upside I see with his secondary tools. And I do think he is probably uh, a step ahead of Lawler defensively. Because Lawler, I think there were some questions about how much does Lawler get away with just because he's such a good athlete. Um, and Witt really seemed to understand kind of the nuances of the position, taking angles to the ball, really good footwork, really good exchange, probably um, a little bit better arm strength as well. So I think for me, like as we think through it now on the podcast, I would probably take Wit a hair above, but it wouldn't shock me or I wouldn't call you crazy if, if you did prefer Lawler. I think in that 2019 class, it was Adley's kind of the 1A and Bobby is kind of the 1B, and we really didn't have to think about it too much throughout the draft process. But it's a it's a fun conversation to have now. Yeah, I mean, you, it, it feels have, like the – sorry, go ahead. No, I was just about to ask, do you, do you have one that just on paper or with the video that you've seen that, that you like better? Do you have any thoughts on the on the debate? 
Yeah, no, I was just going to say it's, you know, it's kind of like, like you were saying, it's like Chipotle versus Qdoba, right? Like it's 1A and, and 1B, right? Massive, massive gap. Come on. <laughs> Give them a little more credit than that. It's closer than Chipotle and Qdoba. I, I think I would take, like you said, I, I think I would take Bobby Wood Jr. at that same stage compared to Jordan Lawler. Again, we have like this hindsight bias where I like, I know how Bobby Wood Jr. looks now and he's so mm. good right now that it's easy for me to uh you know it's it's kind of hard to separate what i know now and just block that out of my mind but uh, i do think yeah you're right probably at that same time it's it's comparable tools but probably a slight edge just on pure mm-hmm. pure tools and, and maybe some some shortstop skill as well to bobby wood junior um you know at, at the same time there there's some swing and miss risk to Bobby Witt Jr. and and it sounds like you know a, a, he you know he was a good hitter obviously in in high school if he if he wasn't a if he wasn't a good hitter if he was just raw tools he would not have gone where he went in the draft but it, it sounds like Jordan Lawler you know I, I don't know who the best pure hitter is in high school this this year necessarily but it sounds like he's at least in that in that conversation right now yeah I mean the the polling that we did with scouting departments prior to the season. It was basically Lawler, best pure hitter, and then Meyer, like, right behind him. So Lawler was pretty solidly the guy who won that best tool survey that we did. But with the amount of teams that don't answer that, like, the gap could definitely have been made up if, if all the teams who didn't respond, like, preferred Meyer or another hitter. So I think he's definitely near the top. And I think in the 2019 class, I'm trying to see who would have been thought of as the best pure hitter. That was the Riley Green class, right? I'm not crazy, am I? Or was he 18? Right. Yeah, we're losing believe, track of years. I believe, yeah, we really are. I believe Riley probably would have been thought of as the best pure hitter. And then C.J. Abrams, everyone was like, oh, he has like the best pure bat-to-ball skills. Um, I think that's how it lined up that year. But I don't remember Bobby Wood ever being like, oh, he is the best pure hitter in the high school class. I think Riley Green was kind of that guy. Right. Yeah. And that, to me, that that hit tool is is so important. Again, it sounds like Bobby yeah. Wood Jr., Again, at least from the reports we have from, you know, from the alternate site, it does sound like, you know, he, he did not have a great pro debut. Yeah, I was in... about to say, this conversation is also interesting because we really have 37 games of rookie ball and Bobby Wood Jr. hit 262, 317, 354. So really, like you're saying, not, not a super impressive debut. It's not like he went out and hit like C.J. Abrams. So... I can, if you were still skeptical of the hit tool, like I, I don't think that's crazy. Like he still hasn't really proven an elite hit tool or a plus hit tool in pro ball. And he still will have to do that, but I'm, I'm fully bought in. I, I need no convincing on this one. With, with Marcelo Meyer though. Yeah. Like you said, he just seems like, yeah, I remember seeing him play for the USA 17 U team. Uh, again, I'm losing track of the years. Must have been two summers ago. He was probably 17, I think, at that time. Yeah, and, and this was when we were in Chicago together. Right. Yeah. So yeah. that was that would have been 2019. Yeah. And so he, he just stood out for just the he had good just the the size. Not that he's like a big bulky guy, but just the in the physical like he's six three, mm-hmm. physical projection left, and and just how smooth he was. Just watching him feel the ground ball or or swing the bat, he had a really nice, easy swing from the left side. He just looked like somebody where all all the mechanics, all the actions, both 
in the infield and in the batter's box looked right. And he was one of those guys where it seems like once you, once you just layer on some strength to him, just a, a natural strength progression to him to, to fill out, add some muscle, it seems like you were going to see the power start to, to jump with him, which, which, which is not necessarily a given, but it, it just seemed like a very, very smooth, calm, easy, under control uh, type of player. Yeah, I think you nailed it. That's kind of what I see from him as well. And, and with that power projection and power potential, I think you're right. Like you're spot on. Like his swing is, is so leveraged right now for fly balls. And as he continues to fill out that frame, like we have him listed at 6'3", 185 right now. When he starts to get into his like man strength, it could be pretty scary. And when you combine that additional strength with his natural feel for hitting that he has already, it could be a really good combination. But um, how do, do you, you think? Some of, no, go ahead. I was going to say, do you think there's a chance he could jump up over over Lawler come come draft day? I mean, I would never say never. I don't think. Again, this year, the top of the class has been so much more difficult to lock people in early in the process. And they're both going to be playing. They're playing in hotbeds for baseball. So I think scouts might be able to take a little bit more from their performance or lack thereof um, than they would in other states, maybe more northern states or areas where the pitching just wasn't as good. So, yeah, certainly. I mean, we have them side by side on the high school rankings. So if Marcelo Meyer just went off this year and started tapping into some of that physicality, started hitting for more power and maybe Lawler struggled. It wouldn't shock me if they flipped. I don't think that there is some massive gap between the two right now to where in four months from now it could be flipped. Yeah. And, and you, you know, we've talked about it on the podcast before and I'm sure you've mentioned it many other times and in, in other formats, but it, it, it's not, it doesn't seem like this year there's no obvious, one one pick right now the no. way it would have been in previous years with like an Adley Rushman being okay this is kind of the clear-cut favorite to go one one obviously Kumar Rocker is is you know <laughs> very very famous and and very talented mm-hmm. and maybe if the draft were today you know maybe a good chance he would go one one I'll go again like you said like we've been saying it's it's not a lock so it it's like we're saying, these are the top two high school players in the class. I I don't know. I I guess I wouldn't I wouldn't be shocked if if either of these guys would be in the mix for for one one overall. If if either of these guys just go bananas this yeah. this spring, because like we we're saying, these are two guys who just uh, check a lot of boxes. Their hitting ability, premium position, athleticism. Uh, tools a- across the board, especially in, in Lawler's case. So, I mean, I, don't know. I know we're talking about shortstops here, but it also wouldn't surprise me if James Wood was a guy who was in the mix for the first high school player off the board. Ooh. If a team really bought into his upside, if if you wanted to say that his upside was the best in the high school class, I don't think that's crazy. He's a six foot six, two hundred thirty pound guy with monster power, freak athleticism. He's not a shortstop. He's not playing the infield. So you have to take that into account, but he's got massive power potential from the left side. And if you really think he's going to hit at a high level, grow into his body, add more power. I mean, I think that's a guy who also fits in, in this conversation as well. Um, so, so yeah. And he, again, he's a guy who's playing in Florida. A lot of people have seen him. 
I think the action is going to start very high on James Wood as well. So I wouldn't want to leave him out of this conversation, although I understand we're talking about shortstops. At the, at the same time, do you think he might be somebody who, uh, at least of the players who are in this upper echelon of the draft, but at least on the high school side conversation, hmm. he might be more of a, a split camp type guy just because yeah. of how unusual he I, – I feel like Meyer and Jordan Lawler – they 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 just check so many boxes you're looking for from a whether whether it's a traditional scouting standpoint or any other metrics you're you're looking at. Whereas James Wood is this gigantic dude. <laughs> I mean, he's like you said, six 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 monster. Might even be six seven now. I don't know. He's officially what his height actually is. I've I've heard six seven at times. We have him at six six right now. So either way, very tall, very large human being. Yes. But yeah, I think that's a good point. And, and I think the, the comment previously that we touched on or just the safety of that shortstop profile, I think that will limit how far they can fall because you, you typically feel good about that profile and they're all around tool sets. Whereas with a guy like Wood, if you think he's a corner guy, he's not playing on the infield, uh, then there is more pressure on the bat and the hit tool or the hit tool and the power, I should say. So yeah, I think that that makes all the sense in the world to me. Yeah, that's what gives me a little bit more pause with with James Wood, at least in in this kind of echelon of of players. I'd feel just more comfortable in in the obvious, obviously the positional value with those other two shortstops mm-hmm. we mentioned, but I think also just the the pure hitting ability, the mm-hmm. the, the the bat to ball skills, some of the the, the long arm high school hitter gives me some. Some some hesitancy, some concern, but obviously sometimes those guys turn into, uh, you know, Aaron Judge too, right? So mm-hmm. it's I, just to me, it's it's a little bit more more risk than I I'd feel comfortable swallowing. I think maybe some other people would too, but at the same time, like you said, if everything clicks for this guy, <laughs> you you have a monster. And and just to the the hitting ability of all three of those guys. I'm I'm just pulling up our preseason poll. And again, this is not all teams. All teams didn't respond. I think it was about half the teams responded to this poll. But if you look at best pure hitters in this class, it goes one, Jordan Lawler, two, Marcelo Meyer. And then three were tied at number three. James Wood is one of those guys, along with Khalil Watson and Malachi Knight. So there are people out there who think he is the best pure hitter in the class. Just a matter of if it's one of those teams at the very top. Um, I guess that could change things. But these just these conversations that we're having right now is one of the reasons why this year's draft class is so interesting from a coverage standpoint because there is all this uncertainty and there there is a larger group of players I feel like could move up the board or could be in consideration for these top picks really in 2018 Casey Mize fairly quickly established himself as the number one guy he did not enter the season number one on our board and I don't think he was any sort of like one, one favorite prior to the season. Uh, but it didn't take long for him to pitch his way into that spot. The next year, again, we've, we've said a number of times, Adley Rutschman was the number one guy the entire time. And then Spencer Torkelson was kind of the same deal. It wasn't as locked in as Adley Rutschman in my mind. Uh, I've always been very high on Austin Martin and we had him too. And we had him number one at, at certain points in the process as well. Um, but this year is different. And the lack of evaluation time we had last year, the lack of summer, 
uh, and, and just no clarity at the top really creates all that. So it's, it's fun from my perspective to cover it and to see how it plays out. Hopefully it's fun for people. Maybe it's not fun for the pirates. Maybe they wish they had a, a guy who was a very clear number one, like Adley Rushman, but it's fun for me. So is, yeah, you mentioned Brady house and, and Khalil Watson too. And I, you know, I think we, those are pretty comfortable projections as, as first round guys. Yeah, like you said, at least if maybe if the draft were, were today, is there a chance either of those guys might be able to push their way into the, the top 10 picks at all? Or Yeah, I think I wouldn't be surprised if either of them went there. We have them 13 and 14 right now. So they're right outside of that range and it's not uncommon at all for, for guys to go in different spots than we have them specifically on the board. I mean, Brady house was a guy who entered the summer as the top high school player in this class. He was kind of the famous guy who had all the tools had a really impressive uh, hitting track record, power profile. Uh, the question with, with Brady, at least, that separates him from, from Lawler and Meyer uh, and some of these other shortstops is really he doesn't look like most shortstops look at the big league level. He is a lot bigger physically. I think there were questions about would his actions play at the, at the level necessary to be a big league shortstop. I think the easiest projection was to move him to third base uh, or to move him to right field. I think he impressed a lot of people with how well he played the position last year. And I've heard early on this spring that he's come out looking even better in terms of his defensive actions uh, mm. and kind of how lean he's looking. I mean, he, he has the arm to play on the left side of the infield. And again, a guy like this, probably it'll depend on the team and the other shortstops in front of him. But I still think it's probably more than likely he moves off the position, but I think he's making people think twice about it. And then when you combine that, that defensive ability with maybe 70 future raw power. And if you feel more confidence in his hit tool, he swung and missed more than teams probably thought and was a little bit less decisive in his swing decisions in and out of the zone, probably than teams were expecting given his, his reputation entering the summer showcase circuit. So if he can answer some of those pure hit tool questions, and even if he doesn't, if you think that, He's just like solid hitter with 70 power. Like that's a, that's a massive tool set from a guy that you're putting on the left side of the infield. So yeah, I think he, he definitely could fit in the top 10 and the reports yeah. so far this spring are pretty loud. So. Yeah. Like, it, I mean, if, if you put him in a major league uniform and put him out at, at third base at, at, you know, at Yankee stadium or wherever you wouldn't say, who's that 17 year old kid they have running out there. Mm-hmm. He would, he would just blend in. I mean, he's physically, physically imposing six, three to 15. He, he looks, it's a major league third baseman body almost pretty much right, right now. That's pretty encouraging too, to hear the reports on him defensively early on. I mean, Corey Seager is he's even bigger <laughs> than that's than the Brady thing House. too I, it, it's tough to write off guys who are bigger and don't fit that typical defensive profile when all of the shortstops at the big league level are getting bigger shifting is more uh, involved in the game it, it's more uh, teams shift more so range is less important generally so it, it's tough for me sitting here to write a guy off from the position but I do think that, like, if you're comparing him to the other elite shortstops, he's probably not at that tier. So it'll be fun yeah. to see what happens. He definitely wants to prove he can play shortstop. So 
a guy who's not that big at shortstop. Did you see that play Jose Iglesias made the other day? No, I didn't. Oh my god, you you have to pull this up. I'll pull it up right now. I, I, if you search for it, actually, I'm realizing now he made two different ridiculous plays. The one I was thinking of, it was, it was very similar to a play he made about eight years ago. There was a, a slow, I think it might have been a check swing, slow chopper just behind the mound. He runs in, fields it barehanded, and his, his, his hand could not have gotten more than eight inches above above the grass he just flicks it cat bare hands it flicks it over to first base it was well thank god the angels finally have a good defensive shortstop right it's been a drought over there huh really has (laughs) no i just saw the one you're talking about that was really impressive he's almost horizontal to the ground when he's throwing this thing yeah second one then the other one was he was running back on a a pop-up and the left fielder i think maybe lost it in the in the sun Wait. So he catches it. Are you watching it now? Yeah, I don't understand how he <laughs> and then throws it behind his back and flips it to the left fielder for the double play. Didn't throw it to the other fielder to just to get it in the infield quicker. I'm confused. It looked like he dropped it, and then I think my mind just melted when I saw it. So I don't, I can't give an accurate description right now. But it was a ridiculous, both okay. ridiculous. Since plays. we're since we're watching web gems on a podcast. Um, it's pretty good for our listeners to yeah, uh, hear no, us it's great. It down. But I think but, um, everybody else has seen. This, if you this haven't, play. if you haven't, go look it up. But but he had he had. I remember him when he signed, or even before he signed, coming out of Cuba. Man, I think he was a teenager, maybe twenty. He was pretty young when he came out, and I just remember scouts putting eighty hands on him, and I was like, uh, it's kind of hard to picture it under <laughs> or believe somebody putting an 80 on a guy's hands until you see it Mm -hmm. and then when it comes out and it looks like that and you're like oh wow that's that's legit right there i don't know if i've seen a person with 80 hands i I wouldn't i would be hesitant to just throw it out there myself but the best hands i think i've probably seen in person were nick madrigal's when he was in high school and i was an intern at the time so i was still kind of figuring everything out but I remember watching him turn double plays. I think it was at TOS when he was playing with the, the U.S. guys. Uh, they were trying to figure out who was on the uh, USA team. And I was just mind blown with how quickly he got the ball in and out of his glove on the pivot. Who is the best – I guess who has the best hands of anyone that you've seen? And you have probably seen a lot more of them than people who are covering amateur players or domestic players, I should say, because – the international kids, it just seems like it's something different with how they're able to to, to maneuver around the field and play it defense. Is, it is hard to top. Jose Iglesias, I I think just he he'd probably be number one, but man, Armando Cruz, who just signed with the Nationals for like four million bucks, I he 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 has phenomenal phenomenal hands this guy he, he looks like Allen Iverson at shortstop man it's he you've probably seen the videos that we just have of him on our, our site or shared on either my Instagram account or or the BA Twitter account maybe but this guy has some of the best hands I've ever seen 
at at that age. At he signed it. He just turned seventeen, but he's he he was he signed at sixteen. I've seen him since he was thirteen years old because he was in the same program that had Eric Pena. So I went to go see Eric Pena, and I just you know he happened to be there and he really stood out obviously from an early age just for his hands he's the one where you see him fielding the ground ball between his legs he feels (laughs) it through his legs yeah just do it yeah like you (laughs) yeah you i mean you wouldn't he's not gonna do that well i don't think he would do it in a game he just sort of does it because this you know a lot of swaggy yeah and and all these kids down there are fielding hundreds and hundreds of ground balls every week they're they're out there training almost every day during during the week so they're just trying to mix it up and and have fun and I think sometimes when uh, I'm there with the video camera they like to put on a, a show sometimes so that that probably plays into it but he has he's a really quick twitch Short, he's not a super fast guy, but like as far as just raw foot speed, but Mm -hmm. extremely fast hands and extremely secure hands, too. I mean, you see him doing these ball tricks behind the back and feeling the ground balls through his legs and even doing it on the run. I'll say, I've never seen him miss a ball when, when he tries to do it. And talking to talking to a lot of scouts who've been scouting international players for 10 20 30 years uh, you don't really get much pushback from them either when it just comes to evaluating pure pure defensive ability hands and and not just the the hands and, and the fancy flashy stuff that's just fun to watch he's 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 also just a really smart high baseball iq player he, he plays in He's grown up playing in a lot of games um, in that, that La Javilla program, growing up playing in that little league that they have. It's a really good program in, in Santo Domingo. So he has a lot of experience. You can just see it in, in everything he does from, from the way he runs the bases even. just to, uh, But especially on the defensive side, it's, it's, he has the ability to make the flashy play and, and make the, you know, the barehanded grab coming in on a, a slow roller good range, good reactions, reads off the bat, makes makes good decisions in the field too, and, and has a really, really strong arm too. So it's it's tough to put a you know anything better than a plus future glove on a, a sixteen or, or now seventeen year old defensive shortstop. But um, if he if he just hits enough to play every day at the major league level, he has a chance to just be a, a really, really special type of defender. Yeah, you touched on a lot of it just there, Ben, but do you want to talk about what you look for in a shortstop, like in terms of tools, in terms of actions? I'm sure there are a lot of people, I know there are a lot of people who have asked you kind of what you look for at different positions, but you hit on a lot of that. And one of the interesting ones to me is is foot speed and just speed in general for a shortstop because, I mean, in my mind, the best defensive shortstop in baseball is Anderson Simmons. Um, and he's not exactly the fastest guy in terms of pure sprint speed. Uh, it's 31st percentile on baseball savant, and he's always been in the 27 or 26 um, feet per second in, in that category. So for him, it doesn't seem to be like straight line speed is a problem at all. 
when you're evaluating a shortstop just defensively, what, what kind of things are you looking for and what kind of things are scouts looking for when they're bearing down? Yeah, the speed one is, is, a, is a great point, and I, I definitely agree with that. I, I, don't think, I don't think you have to be a plus runner to play shortstop. I don't think you have to even be an average runner to play shortstop. Now, speed and first step quickness are, are probably going to be a lot, like they're probably going to be correlated pretty highly right? You're not going to have typically a, a 70 or an 80 runner who's, who's got slow feet off, off the bat, right? But you can have players who are average or, or even below average runners who read the ball really well and are, are real quick off the bat. I mean, one of the best, you mentioned Simmons, one of the best defensive shortstops of all time, Cal Ripken Jr. I don't know if that's necessarily his reputation or or not if people think of him that way just because he was such an awesome hitter for a shortstop. But this, I mean, he, I, he was one of the best defensive shortstops in, in the history of the game, I think. And if you just look at, you know, for, for whatever you want to put into defensive metrics and that time, I, I think if you just look at the defensive metrics, uh, that checks out on multiple gold gloves too. And he was not a, a runner. I mean, look at his career stolen bases right now. <laughs> I, it's, I think he topped out at six stolen bases maybe for, for his career as a single season high. And obviously he was playing every day. So it wasn't like he had lack of opportunities. It wasn't like a, hitting a lot of triples. He's just, he wasn't a great runner, but he was a really, really good defensive shortstop. You nailed the stolen base total or the stolen base high. He had six in 1991. Outside of that, he had four was his best. And for his career, he was 30. He had 36 stolen bases and was caught 39 times. So, yeah, the speed does not check out on the base pass. But I, yeah. but I think it's a and, point well made. And he he's an outlier, right? And in, in, in well, in so many ways, just in, in baseball history with what he was able to do. But I, I think it's. I, 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 the reason I probably had the stat right is just because I've, I've used this as an example before where you, you don't need to be this well above average runner to be a shortstop or even to be a, a great defensive shortstop. I, I think speed is extremely important to play center field. And I, I think that that speed underway is a lot more, provides you a lot more value in, in center field than it, it does at shortstop. But if, when I'm evaluating a shortstop or talking to scouts, when they're evaluating shortstop, you're, you're looking for those, that, that first step quickness, those, those reads and reactions off the bat. Uh, you're looking for quick twitch guys. Typically you, you want to see some explosion on, on that first step, but you know, s- some guys are more just the, the, the smooth under control type guys. And then they are the, uh, that then then they are the the first step explosive type guys. You're looking for you're looking for their their range at at both sides. Their their ability to charge in on on the slow roller. You're looking for uh, their their body control, just their general body control at at shortstop. Again, maybe not a a a, a, a like an elite type of athlete. I mean, it obviously helps to have elite type of athleticism, but just having good body control 
at shortstop, I, I think is important. Um, you know, ha- being able to to have an internal clock too, uh, I think is important. You you see that maybe less in some younger players, and and some of that can be. Do you want to go into like what exactly internal clock is on the field? Because I think for people who are not exposed to scouting terminology all the time. And I imagine many of the listeners to this specific podcast probably know what it is right off the bat. But when you say internal clock, what, what do scouts mean by that? It's, it's having a, a clock for, for the game, I guess, using clock in the definition for internal clock is not really smart, great start. But, ben. <laughs> yeah. But, but just understanding, just, just having a sense for, for timing in in the field both as far as 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 you know reading hops knowing when to come in and and charge at a ball or or when to stay back on a ball I, I mean I remember talking to like I remember talking to Bo Bichette when he was in double a because I was watching him for the first month of the season there and up until especially in high school. And again, this goes back to the conversations we were having about some of these other players. I mean, certainly going into Bo Bichette's senior year of high school, he, he go, you can go look at YouTube videos of him, maybe from the Under Armour game or, or somewhere else, but he looked like a third baseman. I mean, he kind of looked like a, uh, kind of like a young Josh Donaldson almost. Um, but he, he, he shed weight. He, he got in, into better shape and but still early on in his career the reports the, the Blue Jays to their credit they always thought you know we, we actually think this guy can play shortstop we think other people are are kind of light on on his defensive ability and, and the progress he's made but there were certainly other clubs that were skeptical of that when he was in a ball but by the time he got to double a I'm watching him and I'm, and I'm thinking this guy just he looks like a shortstop. I don't see any reason why he can't play the position. And I just remember talking to him and, and he was talking about how he's just this super aggressive player. As you can see from the way he swings a bat, he just tries to, you know, he would try to take that same approach to, to the infield where the gr- a ball would be hit to him on the ground and he'd just be running at it, right? Like he was trying to tackle it or something. And he just, <laughs> over time, learned, okay, yeah, there's certain balls where, yeah, you want to charge at it because it's a, it's a slow roller. You got a runner going down the line. You got to charge at the ball to make the play and, and be a little faster on that play. But, you know, on, on the routine ground ball to you, you don't need to be running at it. You can have some time to stay back and, and be under control. So it's, it's, it's having that clock in your head to, to know which balls to, to charge at, which balls to, to stay back on, uh, how much time you have with a, a runner coming down the line. I mean, that's, you, you see that a lot, I think, at the amateur level in scouting players in, in Latin America where a lot of times you, you have kids who are used to fielding, like I said, hundreds and hundreds of, of ground balls a week in practice from some coach who's hitting them a fungo mm-hmm. and it's, it's different when there's a, a game and there's actually a runner going on the line and you can't just worry about looking pretty at, at shortstop when you're fielding a ground ball in, in practice or, or when you're getting your 10 ground balls or whatever it is at a showcase, you actually have to have a clock in your head for mm-hmm. how, how quickly you need to field the ball and get rid of the ball with a runner going down the line. 
Yeah. And just generally knowing too the speed of the runner, like all of the stuff you talked about is, is not even considering just understanding the people that you're playing against and, and guys that you maybe need to be quicker on in terms of cutting down ground to the ball and getting rid of it a little bit quicker. All the best shortstops and base, really all the, all the shortstops that are playing at the major league level are pretty tuned into how fast the actual runners are. Um, yeah. Okay. So you don't, you know, some of that you can, it, it gets that, that gets better with, with repetition and, mm-hmm. and game experience. So you know, when you see a, a young player who's 15, 16 years old like that, who, who already has that internal clock, that, that ability to read hops uh, and, and have that sense of timing at shortstop, that, that, that sticks out and, and elevates him. But that, that is something that, that can get developed more over, over time. So when you're looking at younger players too, you're especially looking at, at hands and, and footwork, the, the way their feet move in, in the infield if, if they have – soft hands if, if they have quick hands it's you know if a guy has really clunky feet and and struggles with his hands from a young age those are more those are more things where it's it's a lot harder to to improve there I think you can you can improve your your feet more uh, maybe not uh, you know there's certain limitations to it but um, you know, I, I think we especially see some some heavier body guys. Like I think of a Raphael Devers when he was mm-hmm. an amateur player. You know, we're not talking about shortstops now, but he was a third baseman who uh, a heavier body type, I, I think is fair to say, and had a really, really good swing, was a really good hitter at that age. But I, I don't think he had put a lot of time on the defensive side. So there was some risk he might have to move to first base, but he put a lot of work into his – his footwork. So you can, I think that's something you can improve on, but yeah, you're looking for guys with just smooth hands, footworks that, that smoothest and, and fluidity at shortstop and, and good instincts too, for, for the game. You want to, you know, it kind of goes, you know, internal clock or, or baseball IQ. Some of that stuff kind of blends in mm-hmm. or, or folds in with it. But those are the, the kind of things between the, the, the actions and, mm-hmm. and the instincts talking about you're looking for talking about all this is is there any player who wound up playing shortstop at the big league level that surprised you that you kind of had written off uh beforehand or or vice versa like a player that you just knew for sure was going to play shortstop that moved off the position are there any names like that that kind of jump out to you that you've covered over your years doing this because i think the first few guys that i've seen like Madrigal is one of the first guys that I actually put eyes on and he's just now getting to the big league level. So I don't know if I have quite the, the recall or, or the, the player experience to really, to really say I wouldn't have the number of players that you would have in your mind. Yeah. I mean, I mentioned Corey Seager before and he he's, he's one guy where, I mean, again, when you're looking at teenage players in, in high school or or internationally again some of it just comes down to you're you're evaluating body types too right well Mm -hmm. is is this guy going to get really big and and outgrow the position or or is he going to be able to stay lean and and athletic enough and and quick enough to be able to have enough range to stay at shortstop and that's always it's always tricky, you know. I don't think Miguel. No, I never thought Miguel Sano was going to stay at at shortstop. But I also, you know, you go back and look at 
his the way he looked at 16 uh, he, he he you know believe it or not he was actually an above average runner then he was kind of a lean guy really broad shoulders figured he'd go to third base didn't think he'd end up tipping the scales in the upper 200 <laughs> pounds so it, you're you're somewhat playing an educated guessing game on on body type and and how a player's body is going to look you know really you know 10 years down down the road in in some cases so with with Corey Seager again another guy was not a not a big runner but he's you know six foot four you just figured or I just figured I think a lot of people did that he would get so big that he would just outgrow the position and, and not have the range to play shortstop but had good I think pretty good defensive skill just it was a question of how much range he would have he had good arm strength good arm strength so I thought he would go over to third base and be uh, a perennial all-star third baseman and and an above average defender at third base so I I thought he was going to be a perennial all-star between the the bad and and the defense at third base but he ended up surprising me and, and I think a lot of people with what he's been able to do as far as staying at, at shortstop. Mm-hmm. And it's been pretty up and down in terms of just looking at one defensive metric outs above average. His first year was pretty bad in terms of that metric, but in 2017, he was positive 2018, just slightly negative then 2019 positive again. So I'm not sure what the analytical um, evaluation of his defense is now, but the fact that he's been playing defense regularly for the Dodgers, I think tells you, all you really need to know about can handle the position. So, yeah. And then I would, the last thing I would mention, probably not to mention arm strength too, obviously that's. Yeah. We haven't really talked about that. Yeah. So you obviously you, you want to see a guy who has, it depends on age too, but it, you know, you've, you've knocked on arm strength with outfitters on this podcast before Ben, are you about to do the same thing here? No, I, I think you need to have a good arm to play yeah. on, on the left side of the, the infield at at the major league level to make to make those throws to make those especially those valuable throws in in coming out of the hole uh, one of yeah just just to jump in really quick one of the i'd say most common reasons that i've heard of scouts projecting guys to move off the position is arm strength i don't know if that's just the easiest way to just eliminate a guy from the position at the pro level in terms of an evaluation but that is probably the most common one especially with like really twitchy, good action middle infielders. They're typically more undersized guys like an Xavier Edwards or maybe uh, not Nassim Nunez. He had a really good arm, but players kind of like that Edwards type and maybe even Madrigal became that. Those guys who you, you really like their actions up the middle and their glove work um, and their movements around the bag, but just the raw arm strength, which just kind of told scouts that they were going to have to go to second base. Yeah, and, and those guys, well, not all those guys, but some of those guys are, are college players too, right? So if, if you see a college player, his his arm probably is what it is at that point. Yep. So if, if you have a college player with a, who's a, maybe plays shortstop in college, I, you know, in, in college, yeah, you can get away with a 40-45 arm at shortstop, but there's only 30 or so, right, regular shortstops in the big leagues. These are <laughs> some pretty spectacular players over there so it's it's those guys I think typically you're gonna see them flip over to second base so I, I do like to see at least an average at, at worst if if I, ideally more than that arm to be able to play shortstop at the major league level I you know for a younger player right when you're 
scouting a player sometimes in earlier on in, in high school or, or especially internationally when you're signing these kids at 16 and really evaluating them at 15 or, or 14, the arm strength can still tick up with those guys. So you, you could sign an, you know, a shortstop or an infielder who has a, a 40, 45 arm, but he's also six foot one, 155 pounds, and he's got really good arm speed. So you can, and, and his really good arm action too. So you can see, okay, yeah, once, once this kid puts some calories in and, and adds some strength to his body, you can see, all right, this, this kid has a chance to have a, a 55 or, or a 60 arm. All the projection indicators, kind of the way you're, you're projecting on a pitcher at that age, throwing harder and, and gaining more velocity on, on his fastball, you're looking at some of the same type of characteristics for, for a young player who, who has those phys- physical projection indicators for his arm grade to increase. But again, by the time you get older, by the time you're in you know college, junior, or even probably a little bit before that, your, your arm probably is what it is at that point. So uh, I do like to see ideally an, an above average arm, but uh, not just arm strength too, but you're also looking at players' ability to make throws from, from different angles. Can you throw on the run? Um, you know, turning the double play, uh, your, your transfer to your, your exchange to get the ball from, uh, from glove to, to your arm and, and obviously accuracy, which at the very young level, you're, you might not see a lot of, but obviously is, is more important as, as you're getting closer to the, the major league level. Yeah. And I feel like Tatis is the best example of a guy who really improved his accuracy and became uh, kind of a fringy defender or a reputation as a fringy defender at shortstop. And then he figured out the the throwing accuracy issues and all of a sudden really good defensive shortstop. So are there any guys in the, we talked a lot about like what you're looking for with a shortstop, how to evaluate them. We talked a little bit about the 2021 draft guys. What about the top shortstops in the 2020 international class? How do you see them defensively at the position? Who do they kind of compare to? Some players we've talked about, uh, are they better defensively than some of the players that we've talked about? How do you see the top tier of the shortstops in that, in that group? Are there any specific players you want to jump into? Yeah, well, I mean, it's just defensively, I think Armando Cruz, who I mentioned before, is, is in mm-hmm. a class of his own. I would not say he's the best player in, in the class or, or the best shortstop in the class there's just got to wait and see a little bit more on on his bat I, I think he has a chance to be an impact defender but I don't think he's quite the hitter that that some of the other top top level players in in the class are and the two guys who really jump out to me would be one would be Christian Hernandez <clears throat> excuse me who signed with the Cubs uh, shortstop from the Dominican Republic. And the other one would be Carlos Colmenares, shortstop we signed with the Rays out of Venezuela. To me, and, you know, and, and we've talked, and I've, I've talked a lot about the challenges of evaluating international players right now, just between how 
early these players are are committing to clubs and then stop being seen widely by by the industry and then oh by the way there's also a pandemic and there was a scouting ban in place for about half of the year in 2020 but i've seen i've seen both of these players and there's they're pretty special <laughs> i mean christian hernandez he's he's really good man like (laughs) there's just a kind of the same way we're talking about with with jordan lawler and marcelo meyer where they they just checked so many boxes with a lot of strengths and not a lot of glaring holes Mm -hmm. i i think you can say the same thing about christian hernandez uh i remember going this was back in 2018. I went to, he trained in the Mejia top 10 program. And I went out to the Mejia field or where that his field was at the time. And it was, this was in the Dominican Republic. And I was going to see some other players for, for two, you know, for 2018. And, and this, <laughs> or this might actually been 2017 now that I'm thinking about it because I was going there to see players for, I think, 18 and, and some 2019 guys. And I remember his trainer was saying, oh, you have to see this kid, uh, Christian Hernandez. He's like, I, I think he said he hadn't really shown him to clubs yet or maybe only a handful of clubs. And I'm like, all right, I'm not really here to <laughs> see see a kid who's 13. <laughs> this is not, uh, you know, <laughs> let me just see the the older kids right now who are going to sign this year, but all right, I'll, I'll go, uh, you know, I'm not going to tell him he can't take BP or, or something. Yeah. It's, it's his field. Do what you want. <laughs> um, he took, he took one round and it was kind of, kind of choppy. Like, uh, like you could tell it wasn't his best. So uh, the, the kind of his trainer pulled him aside. I was like, Hey, like, I think you could tell he was really, anxious and nervous he's like hey like relax like don't the worry trainer about or the player was nervous <laughs> the i think the player was okay yeah, I, I think the trainer was like hey just like calm down like don't worry about like ben or the video camera or, <laughs> or anything like that just pretend it's you know just us here hmm. and then after that he was just he just unloaded i mean it's a really really advanced swing mechanics for his age uh or for any age frankly <laughs> it's been that way for for several years now um it's it <laughs> i don't want to throw like two lofty comps out there but um it's it's swing mechanics that you see from from some of the best hitters in in the game it's it's a lot of bat speed it's it's in the hitting zone for for a long long time he's got really good back control any part of the strike zone he can he can put the barrel to the ball uh, and drive the ball with with impact to all fields I've seen him play in games he's he's performed well in games too and he he's another example too where early on I, I think some teams were saying well yeah this guy's a potential monster offensively he looks really good at the plate he looks like he's gonna hit he looks like he's gonna hit for for power I mean I think he could be a 30 plus home run type guy in the future but he, you know how how is his you know he's about 
I don't know what he was at that time, but he, right now he's about six foot two. Is he going to get taller? Is he going to outgrow the position? How big is he going to get? But everything keeps trending in the right direction for Christian Hernandez. He's about six two, one sixty five now. Maybe he's he's stayed really really lean and athletic, and he he runs better now than he used to. He's a plus runner now. His again another example is his arm as he's gotten stronger is is has gotten the arm strength has improved too so he's got a plus arm and that might still even tick up i I don't want to put a limit on 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 his arm strength either so i think you can probably tell why why i'm i'm so (laughs) it's a lot of pluses that are stacking up there yeah so you know the the caveat obviously is we we haven't seen him play a ton in games recently and, and get tested against a lot of better and, and pro caliber type of competition or, or even have the same level of, of history and, and recent looks compared to Jordan Lawler or Marcelo Meyer. So it's, it's hard to say, Oh, well he definitely belongs in that class of players and he's Mm -hmm. also again he's 17 so he's even younger he's a year younger than those guys right but i I think if 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 he's in in the draft man i i wouldn't be surprised if he went in in that kind of group if if teams were able to see him and and he went out and and performed really well which i i think he's going to do I mean, we're we're gonna update our our top thirties, and the the Cubs got the best high school shortstop in in the country last year. Yeah, I was and about to say Ed Ed Howard Ed is a Howard. guy that we've we've previously talked about in in offline conversations as like a comparison point between these guys. How do you see him fitting in with Howard? I know you said maybe maybe not quite to the tier of Lawler and Meyer, just because of some questions about hitting, but or at least a chance to prove your your bat against better competition but how do you how do you compare him to a guy like Howard who did have offensive questions of his own like is he going to turn into an average or better hitter I don't think his draft year there were no questions about the defensive part of the game I mean most of the people that I talked with thought he was no doubt plus defender he had all of the attributes that we're talking or that you talked about previously uh, just very gifted defensively fluid actions in the field ability to throw from multiple arm slots good timing, um, just a lot of those things. And he's another guy, too, who most scouts that I talked to pegged him as a, a below average or a fringy runner, but didn't seem to impact him at all defensively. So not to get in too much of a, a rabbit hole about Ed Howard, but how do you kind of see them fitting fitting in a conversation with each other? Yeah, I think I think Ed Howard's another guy where it's it's just very smooth, very fluid type of, type of defender. Another guy I think is going to stay at that position long term and I actually I I liked Howard's swing too I think he had good actions at least as a hitter like you said maybe some more just to prove and and show he can do it at the plate too with Ed Howard but I I I would take Christian Hernandez over him and I I think it's 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 even I think Howard does have I'm I'm on the higher end of the camp with with Ed Howard's hitting ability Mm -hmm. but I think Christian Hernandez, if if everything clicks, has a he has a chance to be a middle of the lineup type guy who can hit, who can hit with power, 
And if you can do all that at shortstop, I mean, that's just a, a really, really exciting player. So as much as I do like Ed Howard, I, I would have no problem putting Christian Hernandez ahead of him. I feel like just given the lack of just updated information that people have on the international market, just having these kind of conversations where we're seeing what kind of tier would you take them in compared to some draft players some players who are about to be drafted and who have previously been drafted is hopefully uh, enlightening to listeners who are trying to find out more about these players and maybe don't know as much as you do uh, firsthand. So it's a fun conversation to have. Um, what about, we haven't talked as much about Colmenares and if you want to say more about Hernandez, feel free to, but. Yeah. Colmenares it's, I would go, I kept going back and forth. Like who, who would you take Colmenares or Christian Hernandez? And again, it's, I, I wish we had a whole tricky league, uh, which is the unofficial league for the players to play in after they signed on July 2nd and, uh, a normal Dominican instructional league. So we could see these good guys and, and a lot more people could see these guys playing in, in a lot of games just to get a better feel for maybe breaking this tie here. Cause it's, I think it's pretty close. They're they're They have some, some similarities just as really, I think well-rounded players with really exciting offensive ability, different. They're very different physically. Colmenares is about, 510 he's he's more filled out he's pretty strong for his size he has really really good bat speed and a really really pretty swing from the left side it's it's it just stays in the in the hitting zone forever it's it's really good path it's a tight turn compact it's efficient and again just a ton of bat speed from it, it's it's like weird or this combination of it's it's very calm and easy, but it's also really explosive through through the hitting zone. I think mm-hmm. he he has good good contact skills, and he has the ability. I think just because of the way the way his swing works coming through the zone, it's it, it's it's not an uphill swing, but it's 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 a it's a good plane to be able to stay on plane with the ball and hit the ball in the air. So he has the ability to drive the ball with uh, plus power. So he, he can he can drive it out to the pull side pretty easily. But he can he also has the ability to hit it out or or hit it pretty deep at least to to the opposite field too, which you wouldn't expect from somebody who's you know five foot ten and uh, sixteen or maybe yep. seventeen years old now. So uh, it's that. And I'm not saying he's Juan Soto, right? But it's it's that same type of skill mm-hmm. where where he just has that ability to 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 hit to hit and stay through the ball so well to drive the ball with with impact to the opposite field. Um, he's 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 not as good of a runner as Christian Hernandez, about an average runner. But I, I think he stays at at shortstop. He he has those those traits, those attributes that we were talking about before, and. That you look for in in a shortstop, very good body control and and footwork and hands. He's he's very smooth in the field. Uh, it's a it's a quick exchange and it's it's a really strong arm too. It's it's probably a plus arm if you want to be conservative. You could go even higher on on it than that. So 
finally the the rays have a good uh shortstop from from latin america right yeah. so that's <laughs> another hole for another org that has been filled yeah so yeah th- th- those are the two guys where i mean if, if they were in the draft and even if they were in the draft last year because i think ed howard is a good point of comparison i i would take both of these players over ed howard and again these guys are two years younger than them so mm-hmm. i think that speaks a lot to just how talented these these two kids are again we need to go out and have these guys just not that I have major questions on on their on their hitting ability. I think they're two of the better hitters in the class, but you also still want to just get updated looks and seeing them against live pitching and and in games and all that. But I, I think if if again they you can make an argument if if we do have more more context like that game context and and recent game context I'm talking about where they could belong in in that same conversation with some of these elite high school shortstops that we're talking about toward the the top five or top 10 type of picks in, in this year's draft. Mm-hmm. Well, we're talking about elite shortstops in a lot of different categories here, but what about the elite shortstops on our top 100 ranking outside of Wander Franco? I think it's a very interesting conversation to have between the three next shortstops on our list, and that's uh, C.J. Abrams we have at 11, Marco Luciano we have at 12, and then Bobby Wood Jr. we have at 16. I wanted to play a little game, Ben, called Sign One, Trade One, Cut One. So you're basically just ranking them in order of how, how you like them at this point. Number one, you'd sign that player. Number two, you'd trade that player. And number three, you'd cut that player. Now, to be very clear, all of these players we have as top 20 prospects in baseball. Uh, so when someone inevitably gets cut, we're not trying to say they're bad, but I just think it's kind of fun to talk about how we would each line them up because when we were doing our top 100 list, I think they were juggled pretty uniquely between most of the writers. I don't know specifically what your order was, but I know mine was not the order that's on our top 100. That's not to say that I know more than you guys. It's just a matter of preference um, and maybe bias, but let's, yeah, let's th- dive into I th- this. I think they were all, pr- yeah, like you said, they're all pretty close. And, th- and and the three of them, Abrams, Luciano, Bobby Witt Jr., they're all very different types of That's players. That's why I think it's fun to talk about, yeah. Yeah, so, so hit me with your picks. Oh, okay. Well, I can go first. Um, I... I- feel pretty confident in the order that I'm going to do it here. And again, it might just because of, I know two of these players better, but I'm going to have to cut Marco Luciano. Um, He's your Moe's. Yeah. Sorry. Sorry, Marco. You got the Moe's tag here. Uh, So following that theme, I guess my Kidoba would be CJ Abrams. I'm going to have to trade CJ, although I really like him and he's done nothing but elevate his prospect stocks and signing. Um, and then my Chipotle in this scenario, the guy that I'm signing is Bywood Jr. I just think that of the three, he has the, I, I'm not concerned about him playing shortstop at the major league level. And I think he's going to do enough things at every other area of the game to be impactful while holding that elite positional value. Whereas with the other two, I have, legitimate enough concerns that they won't be playing the position that I think 
I'd have to downgrade them just a tick. But again, I, I admit that I am kind of the high guy on Bobby Wood Jr., uh, at least in the BA office. And I think I'm pretty high on him just generally. But I, I just love the all-around game, the defensive ability, the instincts, base running ability. You've seen it in spring training so far. In spring training, we can talk about how important or not important the results there are. But just seeing what he's able to do on a baseball field, whether it's make diving catches defensively, throw guys out with his arm, um, make things happen on the bases with his, with his running ability, hitting for power. I just love his ability to affect the game in so many different levels. And I think he's going to be a really, really good shortstop on top of it. So signing Bobby Wood Jr., trading CJ Abrams, cutting Marco Luciano. What are you going to do? To me, yeah, to me, Luciano is the, the third tier of that group, which obviously I, I love Marco Luciano. Been seeing him since he was, I think, 14 or maybe 15 and loved his swing. It's just a really dynamic swing. He's able to snap that barrel through the hitting zone with, I, I think he's potential 30-plus home run type guy. I do think... There's, there's some chance, like we were talking about before, that he could surprise and, and stay at shortstop. But I, I think ultimately long-term, he more than likely goes to third base and has the offensive ability to, uh, to, to be a star at, at the position. But I, I think he's a, a tier below uh, Abrams and, and Bobby Wood Jr. I'm going to trade Bobby Witt Jr. though. Yeah. I think I, th- I think maybe I could if if there's a tiebreaker here, I, I could maybe get more in, in trade value from Bobby Witt Jr. It feels <laughs> like there's a little bit more hype around him right you now. You could trade him to me and get some pretty so, good value. Yeah, yeah. I mean you can give me your your Qdoba next time <laughs> we're on the road together. So but I I I I would do that. That's part of the answer. The the in the truth is if if I had to pick one just in a in isolation, I probably would take CJ Abrams. I don't, he, like, he doesn't have the same type of power ceiling. I don't think compared to Bobby Witt jr. Which is fine. He doesn't need to hit a ball 484 feet. That's, you know, I think Bobby Witt jr. Has huge, huge power. Um, I don't think CJ Abrams will get to that, but I think he's a better pure hitter. He has, he has outstanding hand-eye coordination. He rarely swings and misses. You saw that in his pro debut in the Arizona League when he hit 400, was the MVP there. It's, it's, a, it's a good swing. It's, it's more of a flatter type, type path. I think he's going to make a, a lot of contact, put a lot of balls in play, and, and then he has the speed too. It's, it's way above average speed. So I, I think between the, the contact skills, uh, you know, good enough plate discipline, you know, you'll, you'll see some chase every now and then, but even if he does, he can put the ball in play sometimes. So it, it's, it's something where I think he has a chance to be a, a, you know, a 300 well above average type of, of hitter who, who has speed. And I, again, I, I think he, he has a chance to stay at shortstop if he gets traded. <laughs> I don't think the Padres are, are looking to trade him, but obviously in that organization, there's a little bit of a, a roadblock at yeah. shortstop at the major and, league level. And that is – it It really sucks because it seems like C.J. Abrams 
of all of his tools, the fielding improvement that he's shown since he's gotten into pro ball has maybe been the most impressive from my perspective pre-draft and, and when he was an amateur. I know there was a lot of skepticism that he would be able to stick at the position. Like no one questioned that he had the range um, and he showed the actions at times with their questions about the arm. Was he accurate enough? Did he have really the instincts? And I think a lot of people just kind of looked at his running ability and just were like, okay, it really doesn't matter if he can play shortstop. If, if he can't, we're just going to put him in center field where he has a chance to be an elite defender because of that athleticism and running ability. And everything that we've heard about his fielding since he's gotten into pro ball um, is pretty impressive. And I would, I wish that he would kind of have a path to proving that at the major league level without being traded. Cause like you said, I don't know any reason why you would want to trade him just because you have another really good shortstop on your team already. Yeah. So whether he, you know, if, if he goes to second base or, or if he goes to center field, just cause that's the makeup of, of the Padres, I think he has, he has all the attributes to be an above average defender potentially at, at either of those positions. So I, I, you combine that with the pure hitting ability, there's, there's still some strength projection in, in his frame where, where we see these guys who have that natural barrel accuracy grow into more power than people were expecting from them early on in their careers. I don't know. That's necessarily going to happen with him, but he has that long lean frame. I could see some more strength and and more power coming from him down the road. But, but even if it doesn't, uh, I, I still think he, he has a chance to be a, a perennial all-star type guy because of the, the hitting ability, the, the athleticism to play potentially above average defense somewhere, uh, somewhere up the middle for him. Yeah. Okay. So I'm glad that we had different selections here. It's always more fun when we have uh, different answers. If we just have the same thing, it'd be kind of boring, but um, no, I mean, it's shortstops are super exciting always. And it just seems like, I don't know what the golden era of shortstops is for baseball, but it seems pretty, pretty explosive right now. Um, all these guys are really fun to watch. They're going to be fun to continue seeing how they develop. Uh, who surprises us, who maybe disappoints. But um, you had mentioned something there, and, and I know we were planning on talking about it, but guys who grow into more power than you're expecting from them. And this is maybe a bit of a an awkward transition to getting to Jaron Duran, but it seems like Jaron Duran is starting to get to a little bit more power than he showed pre-draft. I know you wanted to talk about him, and this is coming seemingly from a swing change what are your thoughts on Jaron Duran, the Red Sox prospect who seems to be shooting up in terms of uh, just value around the industry, or at least the fandom of baseball? Well, just just watching him in spring training and hesitate to put too much into spring training reports or, or looks, but his swing has definitely changed from, yes. uh, from where it was in college. He's, I mean, he's changed a lot. He's a second baseman in college and we thought I mean there's a reason he was still available in in the seventh round um, but he we, we you know we heard about swing changes he was making last year but obviously we, we did have some video from the alternate site of the Red Sox they, they did a good job uh, a good job for the public of, of sharing video of of their alternate site which was really nice but there was no 
no minor league season. It's you know when you hear about swing changes, I always think, yeah, well, it's it's a lot easier said than done, right? Like you hear, oh well, if he just makes this adjustment with a swing to get the ball in the air more, yeah, oh the swing he's had for probably you know 15 years of his <laughs> of his <laughs> life, it's it's that's been ingrained over and over and over. Uh, it, that's that's it's not such an easy thing to do. Uh, but, uh, you know, I think in college, like, you know, like a lot of hitters in, you know, maybe on, on the West coast or, or in certain programs who, who have a lot of speed and are, are taught to just, you know, put the ball in, in play and put the ball on the ground and take advantage of your speed and take advantage of, mm-hmm. um, you know, less than major league defense, obviously at, at the college level. And, and that certainly can work. Do you want there? to guess his career high in homers in college? I don't know if you know this off the top of your head, but you want to take a guess? Five? Mm, you overshot it. It would be two. Two home runs over two a full season runs. of college. So yeah, 56 like, games. 2018, yeah. he hit two. And it looks like his uh, sophomore freshman. In 2016, he hit one. Um, so he had three total home runs in college and compare that to 49 stolen bases. He was definitely a kind of slap and dash type guy who would just presumably beat the ball into the ground and drive defenders crazy by just getting to first before they could turn the ball to first base. So that was definitely his approach. He had like a wide setup and it's, it's much more narrow now, uh, kind of uptight, but yeah, go. I didn't mean to cut you off Ben. keep going. Yeah, no, that's, that's exactly it. And he, he moved his hands around. So it, it changes his, his swing path. It's more of a, more of a conventional type swing and it looks really good. <laughs> I mean, you saw some of the some of the hits he had in in spring training, and that that looks pretty legit. I mean, second half of the year in twenty what is it twenty nineteen when he got to double A, and it seemed like he kind of hit a wall after hitting so well in the Carolina League at the high A level the year before. But uh, I, I I'm really curious to see how this translates this this season against I gotta assume he's going to AAA uh, and probably could be in the big leagues at some point soon if he hits because this seems like a, a pretty good transformation of a guy who we thought or I thought I mean and he was a seventh round pick again so it wasn't like teams were jumping up and down to get him early in in the draft out of Long Beach State a, a few years ago that, all right, this is a, a, you know, a speedy second baseman who may have enough bats to maybe hit at the bottom of the order type guy. Now he looks like a much more pure hitter. I, I think, he, again, he's another guy who has pretty good hand-eye coordination, and I think the swing is working better for him for well, for just, just as a pure hitter, but also for some – some power to come out that you certainly wouldn't expect from a guy who, like you said, was hitting, you know, sneaking out a couple balls over the fence every year in, in college. Yeah. This Duran conversation is really interesting to me too, because it reminds me a lot of Garrett Mitchell, or at least my hope for Garrett Mitchell, because a lot of what Duran did in college is kind of the hitter that Mitchell was at UCLA he was a guy who kind of slapped the ball around and used his speed to get on bases. It seems like that was what the the coaching staff there wanted him to do. And that's the type of hitter he was trying to be. And 
Mitchell is also a guy who's had a ton of different hitting stances going back to his high school days. So I don't know if that's a necessarily a good or a bad thing in terms of like adjusting your, your hitting stance in the future, but he's definitely tinkered with it. And I'm hoping that this sort of trajectory we're starting to see with Duran is something that Mitchell could also tap into because if he's able to elevate the ball more, just get the ball in the air and utilize his massive raw power. That's the reason we had him as like a top 10 talent in the draft. And I'm really hoping that we'll see Mitchell do something like what we've seen with Duran, but yeah, that, and that kind of West coast hit the ball the other way, slap and dash style hitting. I don't know if that's just a thing generally there, but interesting that a couple of these guys have come out and had that approach. And obviously <laughs> the pro game does not want you to hit like that. Yeah. And, and Mitchell's another guy who's, you know, elite runner, really good athlete. You, I know a lot of scouts look for guys with that type of athleticism and, and think that that level of athleticism will, will help you make adjustments, will hopefully lead to good body control and ability to, to make those swing adjustments. And in, in Garrett Mitchell's case, I, I think he has more raw power than Jaron Duran has. 100%. So, so if he can unlock that, obviously we're talking about a first-round pick versus a seventh-round pick, so you're making a much bigger uh, bet as the as the Brewers compared to the Red Sox getting Duran in, in the seventh round. But I, I, I think there's even more upside for Mitchell if he's able to 100%. make that adjustment at the same time. And, and, you know, and Garrett Mitchell hit well in college. I don't want to say like he's not this – raw just just raw tools guy but as far as how how it's going to translate against more advanced pitching and how the power is going to play in games because you know again Mitchell was another guy who was not a big home run guy in in college but the underlying raw power is there for him to be able to hit more home runs than than what the stats showed in Mm -hmm. college I think more power like like you were saying compared to what Duran has obviously at least it seems Duran the early signs that he's been able to to make that adjustment with his swing don't don't know yet mm-hmm. how that's going to play for uh for Garrett Mitchell since we did this with Duran do you want to guess Garrett Mitchell's uh, career high in home runs single season was it six you're right you, you've had a couple good ones today I think I, I think I had to look that one up so that's probably <laughs> some, something stays in my brain six home that's runs useful. in 2019 so yeah but, but both those players are interesting um, Ben I think we're going to go to a quick break and then once we come back from that we will wrap things up and do a couple reader questions uh, but good. yeah thanks for listening so far everybody we'll be right back and we're back. Uh, I think we're just going to dive straight into a few reader questions that we have. Thank you again to everyone who has submitted questions. If you want to ever submit questions in the future, uh, you can do that either on Twitter. Uh, I'm Carlos A. Colazzo and Ben is at Ben Badler on Twitter or Instagram for Ben. And I think it's the same Ben Badler on Instagram for you. Yeah. Okay. Uh, and I think most of these are from your Instagram because you're just popular like that on that app, you know? But uh, Luis Bito on Instagram asks, what do you need to have, what do you need to have to be an elite outfielder? Uh, so we've talked a lot about shortstop today, Ben, but do you want to talk about what scouts look for when they're looking for premium defensive outfielders? 
Yeah, we, we talked about speed for shortstops and how it can or, or isn't necessarily everything for, for them. I think it's much more important, at least if we're evaluating a center fielder, right? Corner outfielder is a little, uh, a little bit different. But if, if, you need, if you're going to play or you're going to project a player to play center field at the major league level, you've got a lot of players who are 70 and 80 runners out there. I think just, just having that pure speed, you, you know, you can be a plus runner too and in center field, but that pure speed is, is so important for, if, for your range. If you just look at baseball savants sprint speed leaderboard, there are very few center fielders in baseball who are below league average runners and Almost all of them are well above average, and the fastest players in baseball are, are typically center fielders. I think Trey Turner had one year where he was the fastest player in terms of just sprint speed. But, yeah, it is, it is very obvious looking at how each position break da- breaks down with speed that, that center fielder is kind of the cream of the crop in terms of runners. Yeah, I mean, you're, you're covering so much ground out there in, in center field. You have so much more of a chance to use your speed out there compared to shortstop where it's it's maybe more about your your reactions off the bat and, and your short area quickness you're not really getting to to run at full speed underway for for any play as a as a shortstop but you you can in the outfield especially for those those value added plays where you're you're running balls down in in the gap or, or running a ball down over your head so I I think that raw speed is important now you can make up for less than plus speed but it's you've got to have really really good instincts to be able to to do it uh because there's going to be guys who are 60 runners or 70 runners or 80 runners who are also competing for those spots and and those guys are also gonna have good instincts so um you know you, that, i think that speed is important but you know you're also looking at your first step quickness, your your acceleration, uh, your your ability to get good jumps and and reads off the bat, the roots that that you're taking to the to the ball, obviously. So you're a root guy, not a route guy, huh? Interesting. A lot of things route. exposed. A lot maybe of things th- exposed on the podcast, Ben. I feel like I I, I maybe pronounce it differently depending on, on that. Who that I'm one was jarring or. to me. I, I definitely feel like I say route runner. Maybe I'm the crazy one. I would I never, like I would I would say, never say route runner. I would say route runner too. Yeah. That's interesting. Yeah. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> but, but you see, I, the, the younger you go, the more it is just about the kind of that raw speed and, and first step quickness and, and explosion more so than the instincts and, and, and the refinement of your, routes or your roots whichever yeah. one you're you're looking at but you are you know you, you even at 15 16 years old for a player from the Dominican Republic or Venezuela you're you're looking at that that at the same time the kind of the finer points of the game can still be be improved but those are some of the kind of core things that that you're looking at i think arm strength is is I was about important. to say you didn't say arm so I think it, it, it makes, you know, it, it's helpful to have a plus arm or, or a 70 arm. It, it adds some value, but the gap between a, 
you know, a center, at least if we're talking about a center fielder, the gap between having a, a 45 arm and a, a 70, a 70 arm, you're not talking about saving that many runs per year. Yep. What's much more important is your covering your, ground. Yeah. Covering ground, the, the range that you have in, in the outfield. So um, it's, it's kind of a scale as far as how, how much polish you're looking for from an outfielder uh, when you're looking at scouting a player who's maybe 16, 17 years old and internationally or, or an amateur player in, in high school compared to watching a guy in, in double A. But those are kind of some of the, the core things that, that I'm looking at when, when evaluating a, a center field prospect. Awesome. We'll jump into another one. Um, Legal Financial Sports Advisors on Instagram, this is very official, asks, how important today is sabermetrics applied to scouting? I guess, how do you balance the two is kind of, I guess, what the question is going into. And this is actually an interesting one because just the other night, the Michigan Saber group uh, at the university asked me to just have a conversation with them. I'm not by any means an expert on sabermetrics or analytics although I'm very interested in that part of the game, obviously, and always trying to learn more. Uh, but we talked about this a little bit. Um, but I'm curious, Ben, how, how do you balance sabermetrics and analytics and what I guess people would think of as more old school or traditional scouting? And for me, I, I think the best, the best teams in, in the game use both of them. Like It's not like it's one or the other. In, in my mind, I don't even really break them out into – different things yeah i i feel like i used to and i'm starting to just think of it a little bit more holistically like the the best scouting departments or or ideally the better scouting departments would be utilizing sabermetrics and analytics i don't know why we use sabermetrics as a term a lot but but would use analytics and the tools we have to be better at scouting and, and help your evaluations and your projections but if you want to go more in depth on this go ahead yeah, I don't I don't even separate the two. I mean, I understand when you're looking at certain data that that is coming from a a Rapsodo or or TrackMan that typically gets classified as analytics versus if you're watching a player with your eyes that's viewed as traditional scouting. I I, I understand that, but I I really don't even separate the two. I think it's it's really just about I just want as much good quality actionable information as I can on a player to be able to make a good decision about a player, whether we're trying to assess what his true talent level is today or trying to, uh, you know, build off of that and, and try to make a future projection, I guess, if you will, to predict what he's going to be in the future. So I, I think you, you can have information that comes from, you know, more, more traditional uh, grassroots type scouting ways that can be extremely valuable in that. And some information that comes through there, that's, that's not all that predictive and, and the same with, other, you know, more more quantitative type data that, that you might be getting from technology or, or other sources. So 
I, I don't even really separate it out so much into my in my mind. I, I just try to get as much good information as possible to try to make good decisions and, and good evaluations and and good projections on on the player. Well said. Let's jump into another one uh, from Albert Kleiko. Apologies if I mispronounce your name. Um, what are the chances that Luis Medina of the Yankees is a starter? And if so, what is his upside? I think the upside is, I mean, if you just look at his stuff, there aren't many pitchers in the minors who have better stuff than, than Luis Medina. I mean, it's a fastball. He was touching 100 when he signed, and he was 16, which is ridiculous. But he's, he's now touching, I think he's been up to 101, 102. It's, it's obviously an electric fastball. It's one of the best curveballs in the minors when, he's, when it's right, when he's able to land it in the strike zone. I mean, he can use it as a chase pitch too it's a really nasty swing and miss hammer type breaking ball and his changeup is pretty good too when he's able to throw it the problem is <laughs> the last full season of of data that we have on on Luis Medina as far as you know game performance was 2019 where he was good at the end of the year he also walked like over six batters per nine <laughs> had an ERA over six in low A. Now he was much better pitching in winter ball this year where it, I mean, you, you hope everything is coming together for him right now. Cause if, if he can throw strikes, he doesn't even need to have plus control. If he can just throw enough strikes the, it's certainly a, a starter's repertoire. I don't think he's even had a chance to really throw his changeup enough just because he's been so behind in the count mm -hmm. so many times where it's, sometimes it's hard to work in that pitch, or especially if it's your third pitch when you're just operating from so many you know, 2-0, 3-1 counts. You're probably not going to go to your changeup then, but if, if he can just throw enough strikes, he certainly has a starter repertoire and it's a, a frontline starter type of repertoire. Mm -hmm. he, he is a huge X factor. I mean, obviously, I really want to see what Jason Dominguez does this year. But, you know, just uh, for a pitcher in that organization, the guy I really want to see is him because he's such a, a wild card where the performance, obviously, if, if you just look on paper, has been uh, poor. <laughs> I think it's <laughs> fair to say with obviously some, you know, the exception at the, the end of 2019 and, mm -hmm. and what he did this, this winter, but the stuff, and again, that some of the more recent performances he's had have been really good. So I don't, I don't have a ton of conviction on which way I think it's going to go, but I, I certainly think the upside is there for him to be a frontline kind of starter. Yeah, definitely. And we got another question here about uh, a few starting pitchers and questions of upside. Sean Cohen on Instagram asks, do you think Matthew Allen or Cade Cavalli has higher upside? Um, and this one I can touch on a little bit more, but I'm curious if you have any 
opinions that jump out with this conversation as well, Ben. Yeah, we, we have pretty good reports on both those guys. Mm-hmm. Um, I really like the Matt Allen pick that the, the Mets made yep. coming so, out of the draft. Yeah, yeah, Matt Allen was drafted in the third round, and they signed him for $2.5 million, and Cavalli was drafted in the first round where you'd expect a guy with – they had similar talents coming out of both their drafts. Um, the Mets just got really creative with how they were able to get uh, a couple big names in their draft with Matt Allen, and Cavalli signed for, I believe, just over $3 million. So similar in terms of where we had them ranked and similar in terms of the money they got, if not the actual draft position that they were taking in. but. I feel like no, you can go ahead. No, sorry, go ahead, Carlos. I was going to say I feel like they're both in a similar range for us. N- neither are on the top 100, but I think both were guys who we had considered putting on at the at the back end, and are guys who just missed. Uh, in, in terms of stuff and in their arsenal, I feel like they both have potential double plus fastballs. I feel like they both have potential plus secondaries. I mean, Cavalli's breaking ball gets really loud feedback from scouts the slider when he's hitting on it is pretty filthy in the upper 70s and into the lower 90s with tilt uh that makes it effective against both lefties and righties i know matt allen when he came out of high school his curveball it's more of a like top down breaking ball it was one of the better curveballs in the class really high spin rate pitch um and i think with with allen too some people think the changeup can be a plus pitch. So you're talking about three plus or better pitches for Matthew Allen with solid control. And then a similar repertoire with Cavalli where you have a really loud fastball, really loud breaking ball, and then a changeup and a curveball that are maybe more above average, but still solid pitches to round out the arsenal and solid control. I think there are question marks for both of these players because neither have much pro or any pro time. I think Matt Allen has 10 innings in pro ball and Cavalli uh, obviously doesn't have any after being a a 2020 draft. Um, But the one concern that I have with Cavalli is his stuff pretty consistently played down in college. He got hit a lot more than you would expect. Just looking at the, the pure velocity. I know watching him with team USA prior to his junior season I was kind of struck by just how easily hitters seem to be picking up the ball out of his hand. It's a, it's a pretty picturesque delivery in arm slot and arm action for me. So I wonder, and I think we've gotten this feedback from scouts, how much deception does he have there? And is that something that he can either add to in terms of like adjusting the swing and miss properties of his fastball? Is there an arm slot change? Is there something that'll allow that pitch to play more to its its natural velocity and what you would expect or is he going to be a guy who throws with with a flat fastball that kind of gets hit more so those are the questions that I have for Cavalli uh, and he's also a guy that has some injury history so I think while one is a high school righty and one is a college righty I'm a little I'm a little bit more scared of Cavalli but I think they both have similar upside if that makes sense yeah I think in our top 100 conversations we were talking about it's a good question because we were talking about both of these guys right in that same neighborhood right we, we snuck Matt Allen into the very back of the top oh, he is okay 100 he's he's 98 I mean like one one spot ahead of Mick Abel who was the you know high school top high school right-hander in, in the draft in 
2020 and and Cavalli we felt like was right right in that mix I mean I wouldn't be surprised if you know we we're definitely gonna have to move Forrest Whitley from (laughs) our our top 100 I thought he was kind of borderline coming into the year but um, at least as a, a top 100 guy but I suspect he will be moving out for our our next update and and once we have some more graduations early in the season I could see Cavalli moving in there I I think to me I would give Allen a a slight edge right now the the reports on him out of the alternate site were were really good to I mean I just remember I was talking with Matt Eddy who does our our Matt our excuse me our our Mets New York <laughs> too Mats too many, too many Mats Matt Allen Matt Eddie who <laughs> who does our Mets list and you know we're, we're it's it's a collaborative process but it's, it's obviously harder this past year when when so much of the information was limited to the alternate sites and instructional league so you know there I don't think there was it wasn't really an obvious number one guy. In the Mets system, you have we went with Francisco Alvarez. Love Francisco Alvarez. Ronnie Mauricio's in that mix. Uh, at one point, Andres Jimenez was was in their organization. Got, obviously, I traded to the Indians in the Lindor trade. Uh, but then you have Matt Allen right there. I, I I think he's in that same conversation. Obviously, he's a little bit lower down. I think there's less risk in the in the hitters than than with a, a pitcher like Allen. So maybe that's uh, a little bit of a gap there, but I think he he elevated his stock in 2020. I know it probably sounds a little strange to say for somebody who you know, didn't pitch in a, a game. There was obviously no minor league season, but it, it wasn't to the Quinn Priester level. Quinn Priester with the, their Pirates, their their first round pick in 2019. It sounds like his stuff jumped to to a really really high level, but it's it's a good fastball with 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 Matthew Allen. It's it's probably a tick less velocity maybe compared to Cavalli, but it it plays well. I think he has a good understanding of of how to pitch, and I think that curveball is a a separator for him. It's it's really tight rotation and and good shape. I think he's going to miss a lot of bats with that. Like you said, it's a three pitch mix too with that that changeup has good movement to it too so you know we we haven't really seen how that's gonna play yet but I think the three pitch mix is there for him to be a mid-rotation starter uh potentially better uh we don't, don't quite know how it's gonna play when I want to see a little bit more track record before I feel comfortable projecting too much higher but I, I think I, I wouldn't be surprised if he's the best prospect in 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 the system at at some point, I he, he's I, I think he's I, I I'd probably lean toward him over over Cavalli at this point. All right, and I think we got one more question that we're going to hit on. Clayton Hopfinger on Instagram asks: Is there a huge playing style difference between American prospects and international prospects? And I feel like this is a podcast well suited to answer this question. I think well, obviously every player is is different. But I think every country has not just its own culture, but its own baseball culture. And, and even within a country, there are, are different areas of a country that have different baseball cultures, different ways that players are, are typically taught to 
play the game. You see that even in the United States. I mean, we've talked even a little bit about it on, on the podcast already with, you know, guys like Jaron Duran and, and Garrett Mitchell on uh, the way their, their swings work and, and are kind of taught to, uh, or have been taught to, to hit the balls. So you see different tendencies and things like that and, and different styles, different mechanics in, in different countries and in, within a country and in different parts of the countries. Cause, cause they have different baseball cultures. If, if you look at a, a, a you know, pitchers in, in Japan, I think they have pretty distinct windups and, and a pause and a hesitation in, in their deliveries. At least a lot of pitchers from, from Japan have that. They, they grow up and are, are taught that even they have mechanics that you, you don't see taught from you know conventional coaching in in the united states from kids who grew up there or a kid who grows up in the dominican republic is probably not going to have that uh pitchers in in cuba you see them throwing from all sorts of different arm slots and and arm angles intentionally you don't see that from any kind of pitchers typically who come up whether they're whether they're american or dominican or venezuelan who come up through the who come up from signing with a, a major league team, the pitching somebody in the organization to say, hey, stop doing that. We want you to throw from one consistent arm slot, one consistent release point. Um, but in, in Cuba, obviously, El Duque is kind of the prime example of that, where you, you, that I think more people are, are familiar with, where you just see a guy throwing from all types of different arm slots and angles, and it, it makes – you know, your breaking ball work effectively, kind of like multiple different pitches or, or even just the types of pitches you throw. Where in, in Cuba, you, you see guys who throw splitters, or a lot of guys there throw splitters. Or in Japan, pitchers throw splitters. And, I mean, how many, how many American pitchers, or, or again, even Dominican or, or Venezuelan guys who come up through major league organizations throw splitters? It seems like Auburn specifically as a college that a lot of their guys are throwing splitters. I think Richard Fitz has experimented with it and Casey Mize. So that's, that's one specific one that comes to mind, but yeah, it's definitely a rare pitch in general. Yeah. I mean, Casey Mize is, is such an aberration. There, there's mm-hmm. not many guys who throw the splitter, which, which I think is a shame because I think it can be a really effective pitch, maybe in part because guys are so unused to seeing it at <laughs> at the major league level or at the minor league level in the United States, it looks like a fastball coming out of your hand. And, and if it's good, like, like Tanaka, it just falls off the table and, and dives underneath bats. It gives you a pitch to miss bats where even if you don't have that feel that what I think is an innate feel to spin a curveball, if you can throw that split finger fastball, well, now you have a, a swing and miss pitch that can work for you as a, as a starter, it can work for you out of the bullpen. I, I, I wish more guys would come up throwing a splitter in, in professional baseball in, in the United States. I think it's a, a missed opportunity. You don't see guys, you don't really see many 40 splitters either, right? Like if, <laughs> if you throw a, if you throw a splitter and it's, it's a four of like a below average pitch, you're just going to scrap it, right? So <laughs> it's going to be a BP fastball. Otherwise, it's going to get hammered. But that's something where I, I wish we see we would see more guys coming up 
throwing for being developed by major league clubs who would throw that pitch. So the, you know, the way baseball is, is taught in or, or developed in, in one country or one area of the country is, is not necessarily better or worse sometimes. So uh, I, I definitely think you see different, different tendencies and in, in different baseball cultures, not just in a, you know, from country to country, but even regionally, uh, different different styles, different things that are that are that are emphasized, yep. um, and and obviously again every you know every player is is different. You have players who don't necessarily fit into every uh, mold that that they're you know is is typically taught in the the country or, or the area where where they're from. But you definitely see these different tendencies popping up in different countries or, or different areas of a country. Which is a great thing. It's, it's fun when baseball can be varied and unique and different. Um, as long as we're not talking about any offensive philosophy that prioritizes bunting, I think I'm, I'm okay with all the varieties. So uh, yeah, it's great to see. Uh, ben, I think that about wraps it up for us in terms of the things we wanted to touch on today. Um, Again, this is episode three, and it's been fun to do it from my perspective. Really appreciate you guys listening. Uh, keep sending your feedback. Keep sending your questions if there's anything you want to hear us do or anything you want to see from the podcast moving forward. We um, are pretty good at looking at all the feedback you guys send in, but we appreciate that. Ben, is there anything you want to plug coming up on the website or anything that you have planned uh, for the future that you want listeners to know about? Other than you and I going out to Qdoba after this or... Uh, I was thinking we were going to go to Waffle House, actually. It's getting, it's getting late House. in the night where it's appropriate to go there. So, Yeah, that's going to be a far drive for uh, for me up here, up yeah. north. But, yeah, I mean, like Carlos said, if if you guys can leave us a, a rating or a review on, on iTunes or wherever you're, you're listening, that's always super helpful for us. To, uh, not asking for money. It's our, <laughs> just asking for, <laughs> for, for a little boost in the, uh, yeah. in the reviews and, and the ratings. So Help us on the algorithm, please. And also, yeah. um, I know we really want the audio quality to be impressive. I'm using a different mic on this episode, so hopefully it sounded better to you. If it didn't sound uh, as good for my side as the first two episodes, I could switch back to another mic. I think Ben's mic has been pretty good, but we definitely want to keep this as high quality as we can, although admittedly, we're both amateurs in the podcast realm we're not in professional studios here but hopefully uh it sounds good at least in terms of the audio quality i know occasionally ben ben's comments may not sound that great to you guys but um hopefully hopefully in your ears it sounds all right that's always the microphone's fault <laughs> well again thank you guys all for listening it has been another fun episode of future projection uh for ben i'm carlos until next time at parker our purpose is simple we want to make the world a better place by working more efficiently, by using more sustainable practices, by developing better technologies. We keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com purpose. Parker, engineering your success. Wilson, you sent the game-winning email at the buzzer, avoiding a 4.55 meeting on everyone's calendar. How did you do it? I got a huge assist from Grammarly, an AI writing partner that helped me make my point. And it works everywhere I write. Summarizing a doc only took one click. When everyone uses Grammarly, 
everything just makes sense. Go to Grammarly.com slash podcast to download it for free. That's Grammarly.com slash podcast. Easier said, done.